So what is the prevailing sin of our age? And just so there's no confusion, let me define prevailing. Prevailing doesn't mean worst. I'm not asking the question, what is the worst sin of our age? Prevailing means uh, the thing that has the most appeal or influence right now. And so when I'm asking the question, uh, what is the prevailing sin of our age? I'm asking, what has its hook in us right now? Like, what is that sin that has its hook in us now? Now, don't blurt out what you think the answer is or just kind of come to the conclusion already because it may not be the first thing that popped into your mind. In fact, I think the prevailing sin of our age is actually probably a layer or two deeper than the thing that we first come up with um, in our minds. Now, of course, we also have to define our terms. We define prevailing. What is sin? Well, sin, let's oversimplify it for a second. Sin is when we live lives that are out of sync with how God created the world to be. So, with all that little, those caveats I just gave you, think in your mind, what is the prevailing sin of our age? Hold it in your mind for a second. I asked that question on social media last week, and I was sort of overwhelmed. Uh, more than 22,000 people viewed that question, the posts between my social media platforms, and over 500, the last time I counted, gave their responses and their thoughts about what it was. And so it was interesting to see what people thought is the prevailing sin of our age. Some people said greed. Some people said idolatry. Some people said sexual sin. There were a lot of other answers, but there were two that got the most responses. Uh, Garnering 30% of the answers was the word selfishness. Anyone here think of selfishness? That was the most common. The second that garnered about 19%, at least when I counted it, um, is pride. Now here's the thing. I think about selfishness and pride. I think both of them are circling around what I would give the answer as, but it's not deep enough. There's a layer that sits a little bit deeper. And so I'm going to give you my opinion, and it is that. So it's worth that. That's all it is. It's my opinion, right? Um, What I think is the prevailing sin of our age right now is we have a misplaced center of authority. Let me say it again. I think that the sin behind the sin, the most prevailing sin of our culture right now, is a misplaced center of authority. And, and, and let me just say it in a different way. Um, we have been duped. <laughs> our culture has tricked us into thinking that we are the boss. And you don't have to go very far. In fact, you don't have to go very far into the answers that people gave me, uh, greed and, and sexual sin and idolatry and selfishness and all those, and pride, right? To see that, that what's at the center of that is that we think that we are the ones who are in, in authority. And I think what's happened is self-determination is kind of like an American ideal, right? And self-determination is this idea that we get to govern ourselves, right? That nobody else gets to govern us and we as a people get to govern ourselves. Well, that as a governmental idea has become a personal thing for us. And we've individualized it and turned it into a self-destructive idol. So let's work it out for a second. If the center of authority in our lives exists right here, then the only thing that matters, or at least the thing that matters the most, is what I think or feel about myself. Now, certainly, there's a level at which other people matter too, but they only really matter 
insofar as they validate or confirm or affirm what I think or feel about myself. So let me give you a few questions to consider, some examples to noodle on. Who gets to decide what truth is? Or whether there's even such a thing as truth, right? Who gets to decide what our identity is, be that, you know, sexual or racial or cultural or societal? Who gets to decide what family relationships and structures should look like? Or even if there is one that is in a particular set of ideals, right? Let's, let's go bigger. Who gets to say what makes the universe tick? And by what measurement we measure the universe ticking? Who gets to decide the ultimate meaning and purpose of life? Now, the more times your first answer to that question was, well, of course, I do, the more you've been tricked. The more you have been duped into thinking that the center of authority resides within you. Now, I will acknowledge that the answer to all those questions and what is right and good in all of them, there is obviously um, some multifacets to them, right? And we all bring our own experiences and wirings to the table, but when push comes to shove, there's got to be something in the center, something or someone who is the one with authority. So for a second, let me just talk to Christians. Only the Christians who are here. I know there's a lot of people here who wouldn't claim to be a follower of Jesus, and we're glad you're here. But for those of you who are Christians, let me ask you this question. When you come face to face with something in this book, in the Word of God, and it doesn't jive or sync with your thoughts or feelings on a matter, probably an important matter as it relates to you, one that you think is really important in your life, who or what wins? If your honest response, if you're being super honest is you win, then you've been duped. You, you've bought into a lie that the center of authority resides in you. Now, here's my personal experience. My personal experience is this is an issue that is not just a cultural issue and outside the walls of the church issue. It's an issue inside of churches. I can't tell you how many people that I meet with and they have already determined what is right before they go to the word of God. And then when they find something in the word of God that contradicts what they have already believed and decided is right, then they'll quickly run to the internet and do a search to find someone who agrees with them. Because I don't know if you've noticed, on the internet, someone agrees with you. You can be the craziest person in the world with the dumbest ideas, objectively dumbest ideas on the planet, and there's one other person that has already created a blog about it, right? And so, so people rush to the internet to justify their view, and they try to then go, okay, well, ha, I was right. The, the scripture isn't really teaching that. Why do we do that? Because we've misplaced the center of authority. And that's why I'm so excited about this new series that we're launching today. What we're going to do is between now and Easter, we're going to spend time in the gospel of Mark. And what Mark does in his gospel is he shows us clearly that whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, Jesus is the one who is at the center of authority. And so let me just give you a quick overview of this book and, and what we're going to do to tackle it. And then we're going to dive into a little chunk of it um, before we get started today. So the first four books of the, of the New Testament of the Bible 
are called the Gospels. And Gospel means good news. And what they are is they are narrative accounts of Jesus's life and ministry. Now, Mark is most likely, it definitely is, the earliest written of all the Gospels. Not only is it the earliest written of all the Gospels, but most scholars believe it probably was one of, if not the first, of all the the books written in the New Testament. Now, the, the book of Mark doesn't mention Mark by name. But there, the unanimous consent of the early church was that this was written by Mark. Now, Mark was the spiritual son of the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and he likely got most of his information from Peter. And so he was someone who came to Christ, got the account from Peter, wrote it down, and most people, uh, not everybody, but most people believe that Mark is the John Mark that is in the book of Acts. So if you read the book of Acts and you see a guy named John Mark, that is probably this guy. Now, here's the thing that we know if this is the John Mark, and I think it is, is that first of all, he is the son of a wealthy woman in Jerusalem who had a house church that met in her home. And so we know that that, we also know that in Acts 15, um, this is the guy that Paul and Barnabas had a huge argument about, and it caused them to split and go two different directions. That's the guy. So here's what we know about Mark. His writing is just chaotic. (laughs) It's blunt. It's unpolished. Uh, Mark jumps from stories to stories, and he doesn't um, embellish anything. It's almost sometimes, one of the things I've been doing as as, as an exercise is I've been trying to listen to Mark straight through. So it doesn't take very long to listen to it in a Bible app, and I just kind of listen to it straight through because it's not very long. It's just, it's jarring. One commentator I said, uh, read, said that Mark uh, shows us that Jesus tells parables, but the way he makes Jesus seem is that Jesus himself is a parable who is equal parts inspiring and confusing. I was talking to uh, Colleen Davenport, who's one of our staffers, about Mark, and she said, it's almost like Mark wrote his first draft and hit publish before bothering to edit. Um, it's kind of like, she said, she said, or it's like he wrote down a bunch of messages on sticky notes um, that he was going to give to Peter and then just gave him the stack of sticky notes and said, here you go. And when she said that, I said, that's what we're calling the series. We're calling this the sticky gospel. And the reason is, that's what it is. The style of this book is sticky. There are two occasions where Jesus spits on the ground and heals somebody with a spit. That's sticky. Um, And there are sticky spots along the way that make you think, wait a minute, Jesus said that, right? Let me give you a couple of those just for fun. And I'm not gonna tell you what they mean until we get to them. Mark 3, a crowd was sitting around Jesus and told him, look, your mom and brothers and sisters are outside waiting for you. Isn't that cool? Mom came to visit. This is his response. Who are my mother? Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And they just kept going. Would you say that to your mom? Jesus said that, and he didn't sin. What does that mean? We won't tell you yet. We'll get there. Mark 9. I'm going to read a huge chunk here because this is a fun one. He says, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, to fall away, who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Is that the Jesus you remember? He said, and if your hand causes you to fall away or to sin... Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
it's better to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall out, think about how many sins come from our eyes, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes and to be thrown into hell. What does that mean? I'm not going to tell you until we get there. That is sticky. Now, here's the stickiest thing about Mark's gospel. He seems very concerned with the idea of authority. He wants people to know that Jesus gets to say stuff like that. That like it or not, believe it or not, Jesus is the center of authority. And so in that sense, the gospel of Mark is a challenge. It's an affront to our self-oriented, self-centered culture. And so over the coming weeks, what we're going to see is that Jesus has the authority to both demand much of those who follow him and to forgive much of those who inevitably fall and fail. So here's the roadmap of this crazy series. We're going to lean into the chaotic nature of this book, and some of you are going to hate it. Some of you are going to hate that, and some of you are going to love that. But here's what we're going to do. Uh, we want you to travel along with us. We gave you a bookmark when you came in. Uh, for those of you online, you can find this on our website. But what we did is we, we're going to tell you what passages we're covering the next week. And you'll notice as you read this, sometimes like this week, it's 15 verses. And then in a couple of weeks, it's like two chapters. Sometimes we'll do short chunks. Sometimes we'll do long chunks. We're going to skip over parts. We're going to handle some parts. We're going to kind of be as chaotic in the series as Mark was when he was writing it. We're also going to have midweek content. What's that going to be? I don't know. It'll show up. Um, I'm going to do some stuff online, and I'm going to do things and try things. If it doesn't work, I'll do other stuff. And uh, Pastor James is already sharing with us this morning. He met with one of his Bible studies and covered some Mark in person. And, and I want to encourage you, get into Mark. Let's make the time between now and Easter, time that we all get into Mark. So if you're in a Bible study, read, read it with some people. If you're, you know, when you gather with friends or your family, talk through Mark. Let's, let's spend some time in this crazy, sticky, chaotic book. So today, with the time I have left, because that was the world's longest introduction, we're going to look at 15 verses in Mark. And at, whoa, hopefully you're okay. Um, what we're going to look at is 15 verses, and as you might suspect, Mark basically skips over the whole birth of Jesus thing, um, and he dives right into Jesus' ministry. So we have no baby Jesus, uh, we just have man Jesus. Um, and as we look at these 15 verses, I want you to look immediately for how Mark already, right at the beginning, reminds us that Jesus is the one with all the authority. Let's do it. Mark 1 1. The beginning. He just starts there, not even in the beginning. He just starts out beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the son of God. This is literally how Mark starts and it is perfect for him. There's no fluff. It's just a punchy statement. It's not even a full sentence. You know, English teachers are gonna hate Mark, um, but, but he just gets right to the point. This letter is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. This letter is good news. That's what gospel means. And it is good news that is bound up in a person, in this person of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And the gospel is and was exactly what God always planned it to be because he says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. So you may remember in the last series, we saw that Isaiah prophesied about Jesus and everything they prophesied about Jesus came true. And he also 
prophesied about another guy. It says, as it was written in Isaiah, the prophet see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. And this messenger that he's talking about, that Isaiah prophesied about is John the Baptist. Now, if you've been around the church very long, you may remember that John the Baptist is nuts, right? This guy has the unique, uh, the unique honor of being the last of the Old Testament prophets and the first of the New Testament prophets. He's kind of like the bridge prophet, right? Um, and, and the thing about him is he, he seems and acts and behaves like an Old Testament prophet. He lived at the same time as Jesus. We don't know if they lived in the same area, but his mom, Elizabeth, was Jesus' mom's Mary's cousin and, and conceived with John six months before Mary miraculously conceived of Jesus. Angels visited both sets of parents to announce uh, their conceptions. And so these guys, their lives were linked and intertwined. And there's a story in, in one of the other gospel accounts about when Jesus' mom, Mary, went to visit Elizabeth and she walked in the door that the John in Elizabeth's womb jumped up and started going crazy in the womb about Jesus. These two guys were connected before they were even born. And then we're told that when John was born, that his dad prophesied about him that he would be the prophet of the Most High, that he would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And six months later, Jesus was born, but had to escape persecution and run away as a refugee out to Egypt. And we don't know how often they even saw each other, John and Jesus. I imagine there were family gatherings, right? Can you imagine what those were like? I mean, imagine that's your set of parents. That's your birth story, right? The moms are getting together and telling the story of John kind of jumping around in, in Elizabeth's womb and the dads would swap angel stories and, and all of that. And as Jesus grew up, he would have read the Old Testament of the Bible and he would have seen on those pages himself as the Messiah. And John would have read the Old Testament of the Bible and seen on those pages himself as the Messiah's forerunner. This is what Mark tells us. He says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And if you're paying attention, this is already sticky. So let me read it again. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, there's actually a lot in there. First of all, baptism wasn't a new thing for Judaism. If a Gentile, which is somebody who was a non-Jewish person, decided to become a Jew, one of the things that they would do is they would be baptized, but it was self-baptism. They would self-baptize themselves. Uh, they dunk themselves. But John here is doing baptisms. Um, and he doesn't make any distinction between Jew and Gentile. What he's doing is he's baptizing uh, people who are already Jewish, and he's telling them to repent. And the baptism was somehow a baptism of forgiveness of sins. So does that mean that when John baptized people, the act of his baptism caused those people to have forgiveness of their sins? You see how it's already sticky right here in the first chapter? It's tricky. Well, the word there that is translated for their sins to be forgiven can be translated on account of. This probably means that John's baptism was he was just kind of going out and preaching to people, listen, the Messiah's coming. I'm the front runner. He's coming. 
Get yourself ready, repent of your sins, and then he was baptizing them as a sign of that. Now, here's the thing. What John was doing was so crazy. Verse 5, it says, The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So a couple things. One of the things you'll find about Mark is he uses something called hyperbole. And if you're not a writing nerd like I am, you may not know what that word is. The word hyperbole is intentional exaggeration for the sake of making a point. So when he says everyone in the city of Jerusalem came out to see him, everyone in the Judean countryside, which is like the county and the surrounding area, all came out to see him. He's, he's exaggerating to make a point. There's a lot of people showing up to see John. It's like everybody is coming out to see him. There's these huge crowds. And why were they coming out to see John? Well, a couple of reasons. There hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. There'd been the silent period for 400 years, longer than our country has been a nation. They had not had a prophet. And so they were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then they hear this rumor about this crazy prophet. This Old Testament style prophet is out in the wilderness, right? And the second reason people would not see him is not that he was a prophet, but that he was also a freak show, right? John the Baptist is the cousin Eddie of Jesus's family, (laughs) right? From, from National Lampoon's vacation, right? Um, John wore clothes that were made out of coarse camel hair, just uncomfortable as you can get. If you think wool is uncomfortable, wear camel hair. Leather belt, and he, he ate locusts and honey. I just, lo- I just wonder, does he have a bag of locusts and a jar of honey, and he's just walking around, just that's all he eats? The guy is absolutely nuts, right? And so everybody came out to see this guy and they would flow out from the cities and flow out from the countrysides to watch this guy and to see him baptized. And some people were getting baptized and it was just this whole chaos. And it's interesting when you read the gospel accounts, the very same people that criticized John the Baptist for being a weirdo criticized Jesus for being too normal. And it's really interesting that Jesus came across supernatural and normal. What do I mean by that? In one of the other gospel accounts when Jesus was talking about John, he essentially, this is in Luke 7, he essentially says, what's wrong with you people? He's like, John doesn't eat bread, doesn't drink wine, and you think he's possessed by a demon. I do drink wine and, and I eat and, and I feast with people and I go to their homes and have meals and you call me a, a glutton and a drunkard. What's wrong with you people? And the amazing thing about John is that he was obnoxious. He was direct He kept drawing crowds. He called people names. He criticized the religious leaders. He criticized the tax collectors. He criticized the soldiers. He criticized everybody except one guy. Verse seven, he proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me and I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And one of the other gospel accounts John is asked point blank, are you the Messiah? And he gave a simple response. He said, I am not. He knew exactly who he was. And he knew that he was the forerunner, the front runner, the one that would declare that the Messiah was coming, which is what makes the next sentence so amazing. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan 
by John. Again, Mark goes right to the point, doesn't give us any fluff. But again, this is a little sticky. Because why would Jesus, if he was sinless and perfect, why would he have to get baptized? And, and, and why would he get one of John's baptisms? John's baptisms were a declaration of repentance of sins. And that's not what Jesus was doing. So again, all of a sudden, we've got this little sticky theological point here. Well, what Jesus was doing is he was signifying that he was the one that John was pointing at. He, he was the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. This was the launch pad of Jesus' ministry. And look how it goes. It says, as soon as the, he came up out of the water... He saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. Now notice something really cool here. We have all three members of the Trinity showing up at the same time at the launch of Jesus's ministry. We have God the Father speaking from heaven, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. The Son with whom he is well pleased is Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes down like a a dove. And what is happening here? Jesus is being declared as the Son of God, which gives Jesus the authority, the authority to do what he was sent to earth to do. Now, it says immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. Again, he doesn't give the long story. And all these stories in in other gospel accounts, these are chapters. (laughs) But he's giving us just this quick little description of what happens. And so when we go to the other gospel accounts, what we see is this story of Jesus being tempted is really the launch of his ministry. He's baptized and then he goes out into the desert for 40 days and Jesus eats nothing for 40 days. And at the end of the time period, Satan hits him with three big temptations and they all have to do with authority. The first temptation, he says to Jesus, because he's starving after 40 days being in the desert, he says, hey, Jesus, if you're really the son of God, tell this stone to turn into a loaf of bread. Could Jesus have done that? Sure. Could Jesus have done that without sinning? See, what Jesus was doing here is he was being tempted to sin so that we can know every temptation that we face, Jesus has faced this. He's starving. Turn the stone into a loaf of bread. And what Jesus does is he quotes the book of Deuteronomy. When the children of Israel are faced with hunger themselves and they fail the test. And he says, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on the very will of God. And then the devil takes Jesus and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, just worship me. Just bow down before me and I will give you authority because right now the devil has authority in our world. He says, I'll give you authority. Just look at every kingdom, every nation. And I think what's happened in this moment, and you can't be dogmatic about it from the text, but I think that Jesus has shown all kingdoms, all nations, everything that will exist. Think of what Jesus could have done. If he had bowed down to Satan, he could have made it so that Hitler was never born. He could have snapped his fingers and ended world hunger. He could have eliminated all genocide, but he would have short-circuited God's plan for him to suffer on the cross. And so he just said, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then Satan took him to the top of the temple. He said, jump. 
<laughs> and he quoted a scripture that said, if you jump, the angels are going to catch you. He says, just jump. And at that point, Jesus just has enough. And he says, do not test the Lord your God. And what is Jesus saying? I'm God. I have the authority. Each of these temptations is about authority. And while Satan may have some authority now, Jesus wasn't going to give him one more inch. <laughs> now, if you think Mark has been cryptic so far, check this next one out. He says, after John was arrested, that's it. Uh, like, wait, wait, there's got to be a story here, right? <laughs> right, Mark? He's like, well, after John was arrested. But one of the things I really like about the fact that he says after John was arrested is this helps me believe the authenticity of this. Why? Because Mark was the earliest guy writing this. He was writing this off of the words that Peter had given him. And there were people in the room that knew that John had been arrested because either they had heard the story or they were there. They had seen it. They knew that this had happened. This is just, it'd be like him saying, you know, after 9-11 or after January 6th, you guys know exactly what I'm talking about, right? We know, we know what happened. He just kind of gave the context. He's like, well, after, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee uh, proclaiming the good news of God. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So here's the bottom line for us today. Either what Mark writes about Jesus and what we're going to study between now and Easter is true, or it's not. Jesus is either the powerful one that John said he was not even worthy to untie his sandals, or he's not. Jesus either brings good news or Jesus' news is completely irrelevant to our lives today. Jesus is either the eternal king of God who brought the kingdom of God near or Jesus was a liar. And the bottom line is, if Jesus is all the things that he and John the Baptist and Mark declared that he was, then he is the center of authority in our lives, whether we believe he is or not, whether we like it or not. And I love that crazy John the Baptist, he started his ministry by declaring to people to repent and believe. And at the end of the section, Jesus uses the same words. He says, repent and believe. So I'm going to follow suit in their line today. If you have placed yourself at the center of authority of your life, if you have believed that you are that center of authority, you are the boss of you, I am calling you to repent. And I know that's a crazy churchy word that nobody likes, but it just means turn around. It means you're going in one direction. Turn around. Go the other direction. Go a different way. If you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, and I'm talking not just to, to people who are not followers of Jesus, but those of you who claim to be followers of Jesus, if you believe Jesus is who he said he was, that he lived the sinless life, that he died on the cross, that he, he was buried, that he rose again, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he has all of that authority, it's time to acknowledge him as the one who has all that authority. It's time to let him have that authority over your life, whether you believe it or like it or not. Now, for some of you, this might be a bit much. <laughs> You're like, I am not ready for that. Can I encourage you to take this journey through Mark with us together? Let Mark try to convince you. Spend this time with us. Take this bookmark and every week, 
Read the passage. You can, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the back if you're in an in-person service. Um, or you could just Google Bible. They have those on the internet. Um, and read this passage one time or multiple times. Maybe read it every day. Wrestle with the claims that are on here. And then join us. Join us at the weekend services. Join us in a Rift community. Join us in whatever online stuff we decide to do and you just stumble on because we didn't tell you about it and it's just out there. Um, and, and wrestle through these claims of Mark between now and Easter. Let's go all in on Mark's sticky gospel because here's the reality. Jesus not only has the authority to tell us what to do, he has the authority to forgive us for all those times we inevitably fail. And we're going to see this over and over in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus' invitation to repent and believe is ongoing. Martin Luther says, all of the Christian life is repentance. It's all repentance. We just keep turning back to Jesus and turning back to Jesus and believing in Jesus and believing in Jesus. So let's journey together between now and Easter through Mark's uh, sticky Gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for crazy John the Baptist. Uh, we thank you for Mark and the little that we know about him. We thank you that he just, it just it's, it's almost like, uh, it feels like Hamilton. He was just writing like he was running out of time. <laughs> just getting his words down as, as, as much as he could. Um, and so we just thank you that we have this, uh, this, this gospel account inspired by the Holy Spirit telling us about Jesus who has the authority to tell us what to do whether we like it or not. And so we just pray that we would lean in. We just pray that you would take this gospel and stick it to us. <laughs> uh, make it sticky in our lives. Um, help us to, to reorient ourselves, to re repent and believe um, because Jesus is who he said he was. And we pray all this in his precious name. Amen.